0: Hi, everyone. This is Pastor Brett from First Baptist Church here in Cherryvale, Kansas, and I want to welcome you to our Cherryvale First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Our prayer is that the Lord will speak to you through his word for his people. If you're looking for a church home, we encourage you to join us for our celebration service every Sunday morning at 1045. It's a great time of praising our Lord and hearing from him. We are just a group of passionate followers of Jesus Christ with a desire to worship him and take his message of hope to the heartland. If you want to find out more information about our church, you can look at our website, www.fbcherryvale.org. My sermon will begin in just a moment, and thanks again for listening. All right. I invite you to find your Bibles this morning and turn to Galatians chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'd just like to tell you a story. It's about a young man. It's a man who ruined his life. He left home. He traveled abroad. He wasted his fortune throwing it away on shallow pursuits and on empty pleasures. Eventually, he came to the end of his ropes. He was out of money. He was out of food. He was out of friends. He was out of help. He was out of hope. This wasteful man, we all know him as the prodigal son. The one that Jesus talked about in his famous parable. I'm not going to read it to you. Most of you already know the story. But what I want to do this morning is this. I want to relate this story to us. Because what do we do? What do we do when we've made a mess of things in our lives? Where do we go when we've blown it badly? To who do we turn when we've embittered our child with harsh words? When we've betrayed our spouse with sheer stupidity? When we've alienated a co-worker or colleague or classmate with a series of me-first choices? When we've driven a wedge between friends? When we've sown discord among our church family? Where do we go when we've been insensitive, when we've been thoughtless or downright obnoxious? How do we respond when we've drifted away from our faith, compromised the gospel or turned our back on God? Typically, when we sin, what is it we do? What do we like to do? We like to hide it, right? We like to hide from our sin. We either hide our sin or we hide ourselves. And sometimes we'll do both of those things at the same time. But understand, it's a natural response for us. It's hardwired into our DNA. We get this instinct from the forerunners of the human race, Adam and Eve. When they sinned, they hid. And humanity has been hiding ever since. When Paul's young converts in Galatia, when they first heard this letter of rebuke read aloud, they too, no doubt, they wanted to run and they wanted to hide from Paul's words. As far as Paul was concerned, these people in Galatia, they had gone prodigal on the gospel. They turned their faith inside out and upside down. That's what happens when we turn our back on grace when we seek to be justified by this thing called the law. This morning, as we begin this new series called I Am Free, it's based on this little book of Galatians. And we're going to look this morning at just the first five verses. So please stand in honor of reading God's Word. I'll be reading Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So if you have your Bibles open, this is what it says says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for the privilege of worshiping you here today. I pray that you'll bring your text alive for us. Help us understand in these short five verses all the things that Paul packed in there that are so important for us to understand as we dive into this wonderful book of Galatians. God, give us wisdom. Give us guidance. Open our ears and open our hearts to you today. It's in your name we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. You may be seated. Now, Galatians is a very small book. It's only six chapters long. And if you would sit down and you would actually read through Galatians, you could probably do it in about 20 minutes. Yet this book has an importance that's really out of proportion with its size. It's been called many times the Magna Carta of spiritual liberty. Some call it the Declaration of Independence for Spiritual Freedom. And it's recognized as being one of the single most significant influences in shaping the history of the church as well as the history of the Western world. It's been said, but for this book of Galatians, that Christianity, it might just be one more Jewish sect... And the thought of the Western world, well, it might have been entirely different if it weren't for this book. So we owe a lot to this little book of Galatians. It addresses the most fundamental of all the issues in all of Scripture, this thing called salvation. How do we receive salvation? Is it through keeping of the law as some profess? Or is it through faith in Christ? You see, that's the issue with these people in Galatia right now. Well, Paul, he's going to answer this question. And his answer is the answer of the patriarch Adam and the prophet Habakkuk who said, The just shall live by faith. It's no wonder this book of Galatians. It has become the cornerstone of the Reformation. So this book of Galatians is an important book. It's a message of one of grace. It's one that we need to continually hear lest we begin to forget. Lest we begin to drift away from the grace that we've been given. That's what these churches in Galatia, that's what they were doing back then. These were churches that Paul established when he was on his missionary journeys with Barnabas. And many scholars believe that this letter to the Galatians, it was probably the first letter that Paul had ever wrote, perhaps around the year A.D. 48. The style of his book here suggests that he wrote it quickly. He wrote it with an urgency because he wanted to get the word to them quickly. He begins with a brief introduction and then he gets right to the point. Something very alarming had happened to those churches in Galatia not long after Paul had left that region. And it threatened the work that he had begun there. You see, he and Barnabas, they had moved through that province. They went through city by city, entering the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. All along the way, they met opposition. Some crowds, they shouted them down. Others drove them out of town. In Lystra, Paul was stoned, dragged out of the city and left for dead. It was a hard ministry, but the Lord continued to bless the ministry. All along the way, Gentiles who had been born into the spiritual darkness, they turned away from the paganism that they knew to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And along the way, small churches were established. Paul and Barnabas had revisited each one of these churches on the way home, encouraging them to persevere in their faith and persevere in the things that they had talked about while Paul was there. But... What happened? Not long after returning home, Paul learned that they were weakening in their faith. There was a group of agitators. They were known as the Judaizers. They had come into the region. Shortly after Paul left, they came in and they taught the Galatians something different than what Paul was teaching them. They taught them this thing called the law. They did this in an attempt really to draw them into what the Jewish system was back then. Their Jewish system of worship, the Jewish system of religion. They claimed to be Christians. In fact, they claimed to actually represent all the apostles that were in Jerusalem. But they preached a completely different gospel from the one that Paul had preached. They taught it was necessary to undergo the rite of circumcision in order to be saved. We don't see immediately the specific problem that Paul, that he's addressing here in this letter. And it's not until chapter 5 where it becomes very clear to us. But that's the background. That's the issue that Paul was having to deal with, with those churches in Galatia. They agreed that faith in Christ is necessary, these Judaizers. But they said, faith alone, well that's not enough. They believed a person must also be circumcised... ...and a person must also keep the law of Moses to be saved. Paul preached this gospel of faith alone, in Christ alone. That was the message that the Galatians had heard... ...that heard when Paul came through there originally. That was the message that they had responded to... ...when Paul was on his missionary journey. That was the message that they had believed while he was there. So this new message that's coming in, this message of faith plus works... It caused great confusion with these young churches. And being relatively young and inexperienced in their faith, they were very swayed by these false teachers that had come in. They not only denied the gospel that Paul had preached, but they actually denied Paul as well, that he himself was actually an apostle. These Judaizers claimed that there was no authority at all behind the message that Paul was preaching to them. They'd come to Galatia to correct the things that Paul, he had propagated while he was there. They were persuasive, evidently, because we see the Galatians, they began to believe these men. They began to believe what these Judaizers were trying to teach them. And as a result, they began to drift away from that truth, the truth they heard from Paul. And they began to put themselves under the obligation of the law. The message of the Judaizers, it was a message that has a very natural appeal to human, to add work of our own to the work of Christ so that we can take some credit for our acceptance with God, that we can have something to hold on to, that we can just maybe even do just a little thing to make ourselves look worthy to God, but just something that we can boast about and take some credit that appeals to the human nature. And we see it even in our world today. So it appealed to those people in Galatia. That's why this book of Galatians, it was so important to Luther, the official church of his day. They were teaching a gospel of faith plus works, faith plus ceremonies all over Europe. People were under the slavery of the sacraments, believing it was necessary to be baptized in order to be saved. It was necessary to take the Mass, to to make a confession to the priest, and to do all of these duties of the Roman church that it required in order to be saved. As we look at the religious landscape in our world today, we can safely say that there's many of those same issues in our world today. And friend, I'm going to say, that will always be the issue while Christianity is alive. Because the gospel of grace alone, it is always under attack. So, we may have to confront it as a church, Or it may be that you need to meet it in a personal way. It Maybe it's in a conversation with a colleague at work. Maybe it's a conversation in your neighborhood. Maybe it's a heated discussion at a family gathering. You hear this other gospel, somebody's saying that something that you don't believe and it's presented and then you have to deal with it when you're talking with them. It's often an attack that comes in a very subtle way. Often it's an effective attack and it's an effective presentation of this other gospel to you or to other people. Then it's actually given even on biblical grounds, often with biblical support. These Judaizers, as far as we know, they didn't deny Christ. They didn't deny His deity. They didn't deny His resurrection. They didn't deny that He was the Messiah. They didn't deny a need for faith in Him. The problem was they were just adding to it. They were adding one ceremony. They were adding one human work... ...which had actually been commanded under the old covenant... ...under the law of Moses... Abraham, he had been instructed to be circumcised. And then he was to circumcise his children and then to circumcise his servants. And Israel, they did that for many generations. But Paul said that one ceremony right there, submission to that one rite, it destroyed grace and the gospel is therefore lost. So when the word of God, when it got back to Paul, he immediately reached out to these churches with this brief letter. And as we'll see, he doesn't mince words when he's talking with them. He gets right to the point. Paul calls these Judaizers, he calls them accursed, which we can translate as damned. He calls the Galatians foolish and bewitched. His concern was that of a parent for his or her child who is under the spell of a seducer. He responded quickly and it responded persuasively. The main point that he makes to these Galatians, which is the central theme of this letter, is this. That justification by faith alone... That's all that is needed. He develops this thing in three parts throughout this letter. In chapters 1 and 2, we're going to see that Paul, he's defending his apostleship. His apostleship, it is apart from men. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul, he defends the gospel there. Salvation is apart from works. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he defends the Christian life. Because, you see, the Christian life, it is set apart from the law. Put positively, Paul was chosen as an apostle by Christ. Salvation is through faith in Christ alone. And the Christian walk is by the Spirit. It's all a free gift, a free gift to anyone who will receive it. Paul's apostleship was a free gift. Our salvation, your salvation, my salvation, it is all a free gift. Our ability to walk in the Spirit of God and to do the things that God has instructed us to do, to live a wise and productive life, it is all by the Spirit, meaning it's all by grace. By the grace of God in our lives. Grace is the key to this book of Galatians. And Paul, he begins this letter with this subject, with a prayer for God's grace and peace. In the middle of his introduction in verse 3, first though, it's a typical letter writing of the day, his style here. Paul begins with his name and with the name of those who he was writing to and an expression of goodwill towards those people. Paul's letter generally followed that form. The words he used, the terms that he chose, they all have deep Christian significance. The words that he used are very significant because they introduce us in these first verses to the general themes of the entire letter. He begins with those three words, Paul and Apostle. And in doing that, he immediately answers all the challenges that were going on in Galatia to his authority. The credibility of the gospel that he was preaching, that he had preached to them while he was there. Now... We may think, well, this isn't a normal way that you would start a letter. But in light of the problems that Paul was dealing with in Galatia in his time, his apostleship being questioned, I mean, that's really what the issue was, right? The Judaizers were saying, Are you an apostle? Was Paul an apostle? That's what was under attack. And Paul, he doesn't debate the point with them. He strictly comes right out, right up front, and he says, I am an apostle. And so, therefore, this letter that I speak to you, this letter comes with authority. Apostleship here is referring to the spiritual gift that a select group of men had... ...men who were authorized to preach the gospel and lay the foundation of the church. Look what it says in Ephesians 2.20. It says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... ...Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul begins by stating, he is one of those apostles. He is one of those who is the foundation of Christ's church... He was not sent from man nor through any agency of man, but he was sent by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, this is what those Judaizers were denying here. In order to undermine Paul's ministry and to gain acceptance for their message, they alleged that Paul, he was not an apostle. This, I mean, this is a very typical form of argument. We even see it today. In order to strengthen one's case, what do many people do? You weaken the other person's case. They would use this if they felt an opponent's case. Well, if his case is weak, I'm going to attack him and not the problem. They would undermine the other man's case, attacking his or her character. It's an argument simply against the man. That's what these Judaizers, that's what they were doing with Paul back in the day. They were seeking to undermine Paul's authority by discrediting him personally, saying, well, that Paul guy, he's not even a real apostle. Paul claimed full apostleship, full apostolic authority derived not from man, not from those Judaizers, not from any of the leaders that were there. He received his apostolic office and authority directly from Christ and from God the Father. Now that's important to understanding the gospel because the gospel is not merely salvation through faith. It's salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. That's salvation. The object of your faith is very, very important. You see, everyone has faith. Even the atheists in our world, they have faith. They have faith in their atheism. The issue here is what do you believe in? Who do you believe that Christ is? I'm going to tell you, the object of our faith for those who are Christians is the divine Christ, the one who is equal to the Father, Christ holds the same status as the Father. Christ is the one and only Son of God. And that's the source of Paul's authority. It was the triune God. His authority was given to him at his conversion. Luke records this event in Acts chapter 9 when Christ appeared to Paul, blinding him on that road to Damascus, and he called him to be his servant. Paul later on writes about this in the first chapter of Galatians when he proves his apostleship and he defends his ministry. But he introduces it here that he's an apostle. His authority as an apostle is real. It's equal to the twelve that Jesus had called directly. Therefore, the gospel he preaches, it is also equal to the one the apostles at Jerusalem were preaching. It's a genuine message. It's the gospel, the real gospel. That's how he begins this letter. Without any apology, without any hesitation, he says he is an agent of God. Sent by the Father and the Son, he is Paul. An apostle, Therefore, his message is to be listened to. So he greets them with this true apostleship message. And then he sends them greetings. Greetings from all the brethren who are with him. He doesn't identify who these people are, but they are brethren. Probably fellow workers and missionaries like Barnabas and the leaders and the elders of the churches at Antioch. But the effect of this greeting is significant here. Because it shows that Paul, he was not alone in his beliefs. He wasn't alone in his claims that he was an apostle. In his conviction that the gospel is the one true gospel, what he had preached is the real deal. He was not alone. You see, the brethren that were there with him were all behind him. The other apostles were behind him too. As Paul would later demonstrate, they received him. They received him as a partner in the gospel. They received him as an apostle. They preached the very same gospel that Paul preached. And it was not this new gospel the gospel that these Judaizers were trying to preach in Galatia. Here, the brethren, the Christians of the church, they stood with Paul. Now, we understand our authority for faith and practice is what? It's the Bible. That's our standard. But there's something to be said for the general convictions of the church... If somebody comes in and says, hey, I got a novel idea. This is intriguing. It's new. It's unique. It's unusual. Something they want to put forth as a new undiscovered truth, friends, let me tell you, that's a big red flag right there. That's what cults do. That's how they get their following. They come along with something new, something that isn't held by the church historically. And they say, hey, come on in. Well, we, we're coming with this new truth, this new revelation that we got. Things that we discovered, maybe on these gold tablets over here or whatever. And we're correcting the church. A church that went wrong centuries ago. This is a new truth. Come follow us. Well, all I can say is, again, that ought to be a big red flag. The Spirit of God gives us general conviction about the fundamentals of the faith so that the church, over time, affirms agreement on them. And that's what Paul was claiming here in this letter. He hadn't introduced a new gospel to these Galatians when he was there. He proclaimed what the church agrees is the gospel. It's the good news of salvation. And then Paul, he goes on to give the essentials of that gospel in these final verses of his greeting. First, by saluting the Galatians in verse 3, he does it with two important words. Let me read that. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The words here, grace and peace, they're found in many greetings in Paul's letter. But they're particularly appropriate here in this letter to the Galatians. Because it's God's grace that was under attack in Galatia. And it was also the Galatians' peace that was becoming threatened by these Judaizers. These were important words for them to hear. And again, even though they appear in a formal greeting, we still need to give them their full theological meaning. Grace is what? It's God's unconditional and unmerited favor, it's His unconditional and undeserved goodwill toward us sinners. Grace is a gift. It was demonstrated to us on the cross by Jesus Christ where that work of redemption was accomplished by Him. Peace now, it's the Hebrew greeting, the word shalom. The essential meaning of shalom is this. It's a wholeness, complete well-being physically, mentally, spiritually in regard to God and regard to man. So here's what it means. It means being at a state of peace with God, being reconciled to Him, and as a result, being at peace with men. Because we have this vertical alignment with God that allows us to have a horizontal peace with men. And it's not just peace with other men, but it's also peace within ourselves as well. And the two are very connected. Grace and peace, they are related. Just as related as a root and fruit are, as cause and effect are. They are related. So we lose peace when we depart from this thing called grace. When people exchange divine grace for human efforts, when they seek to obtain God's approval by personal works of righteousness, peace will suffer. It's impossible to have personal peace when we believe that our acceptance of God is based upon our personal performance. Why? Because it's impossible for us to know if this is true when we've done enough good works and therefore to know for sure that we've earned the right to be secure eternally. Look, if our relationship with God, if it is based at all in any part on our performance, even partially, then we will never be certain about our security, about our relationship with God, because we will never do enough. And if you ever get to that point, or if you hear of anybody that gets to that point and they say, well, I think I've done enough now. I think i'm ready to hang up the shoes i think i've filled up my need for righteousness i've hit my requirement my quota i've reached that point i have arrived i'm gonna tell you if you ever get to that point you obviously don't understand just how lost you are we should never feel that way true christians know there's always more and more and more for us to do and we've not even done what we have done well enough and so If our relationship with God, if it's based at all on our performance, what we can do... ...then we can never have this sense of security in that relationship with God. We can never have peace. And that was the problem in those Galatian churches that Paul was dealing with. Later on in chapter 5, verse 4, Paul tells them this. He says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, he didn't mean here by that that they lost their salvation... He simply says they had fallen out of God's hand. They had fallen from the principle of grace. That's how God deals with us. He deals with us on grace. They had fallen into this thing called legalism. So he wrote to them. He said, you lack peace. And that's what he wished for them. He prayed for that peace to come back into their lives. He prayed that they would have both the peace and the grace that they needed. Both of them come to us in only one way. Through the only mediator between God and man. They come to us through Jesus Christ. And Friends, that's what we need to understand. It's only through Him that we get them. We must have a good understanding of our Lord and His relationship to us. Who He is, what He's doing, and what He's done. And Paul speaks to that in verse 4. What that means very simply is salvation is God's work. It's not our work. The Father planned it. The Son executed it. We have no part in it at all. In fact, Christ's work of salvation is not incomplete. What was it that Christ said on that cross? What were His last words? It is Finished. It's done. We can add nothing, nothing at all to it. And that's Paul's point here to the churches in Galatia. But he developed it in terms of the Father and the Son's role in salvation by showing us that God, He is the author of salvation, and Christ, He is the basis of our salvation. First, it all happened according to the will of our God, the Father. It's an eternal plan. That's implied in the word God. He's eternal. He's the eternal one without beginning and without end, whose thoughts and plans are as eternal as he is. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He always has known it. I tell you, I run into people all the time and say, well, I bet that surprised God. No, friends, nothing surprises God. There's never been a time when a thought occurred to God, I didn't know that. It doesn't happen, okay? God's thoughts are eternal. He's always known everything that is or ever will be or ever could be. He always has known everything. And Paul, he described the plan in those terms in other places as well. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, he speaks of God's choice of us here. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, which means, what? Before there was time, right? He chose us. But the name God also denotes his power, his omnipotence. And that means his will to save. It cannot fail. If he wants to save, he can, he will. It must be accomplished and he has the power to succeed and therefore his will must succeed. Just that thought alone is God that has drawn up that plan, makes it evident that God is omniscient. God cannot be frustrated. The omniscient, omnipotent God, he will succeed. He will save those who he's chosen to save. He's also designated as our father and to me that suggests something more than great power. That expresses the affection or the disposition of His great love. And that's what lies behind the plan of salvation in our lives. It's the infinite, irresistible love of God the Father who willed to make His children and cannot be frustrated in doing that. He wants us to be His children. So to carry out His plan, what did He do? He sent His Son, the one and only Son of God who couldn't fail. Who Paul said, He gave Himself for our sins. Meaning, he sacrificed himself for us because we're sinners, because of our sin. He willingly gave himself because of our sin. How did he do that? By becoming our substitute on that day of judgment, suffering the penalty of death in our place, taking that penalty, the penalty that we deserved for our sins, and he did it. He didn't do anything wrong but he took it for us. That's how Paul explains the Lord's death later on in chapter 3, verse 13. Look at it. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, even though he was innocent, he was our substitute in that atonement. And in that way, by taking our place, he satisfied the righteous demands of God towards us, the law that demands death for sin. He took that death. He took it in our place. And his death, it was sufficient for us. In fact, it was sufficient for an innumerable multitude because he's not only a true man who represented mankind, but he was also God. And that fact alone, the fact that he was the God-man, that his deity, it was joined with humanity, made this sacrifice, made sure it would succeed in paying for this sin of everyone, everywhere. He rescued us. He rescued us from this world. Now, is that how you would describe it? This present age, we understand it is an evil world. It's an evil age that we live in. Aren't you so glad that God has rescued you away from this evil world? But i got to tell you, there's so many that they don't want to be rescued. They don't want to be separated from the evil world. And maybe if truth be known, maybe, there's many Christians that wouldn't want that either. They don't want to be rescued from it. They want to be established in it. And sometimes we fall into that too. We want all these nice things that the world has to offer. And i got to tell you, the world, it offers so much. It puts so much out there before us, and we just simply want it. So many just want to enjoy it all, and that's how most of us see things in our lives. But Paul, Paul saw it differently. He saw it below the surface. He saw this world at its core. Have you ever cut open a piece of fruit or a vegetable or something? I mean, it looks so nice on the outside, and you cut it open, and rotten on the inside. You ever done that? We see that's how Paul saw the world. He was no severe self-denying monk. Someone who believed that pleasure in the worldly things were bad. In fact, he was just the opposite of that. He condemned that attitude. He condemned those who said, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those who made religion a thing of negativity, of denying yourself of all of these things of the world. Paul was not like that at all. You see, he understood God's creation was good. In fact, it's blasphemy to deny ourselves many of these things and say that they're bad. You see, because what comes from God, the Bible tells us it's all good. But the system or the spirit of this age, you need to understand it is evil because this is a fallen world. It's under the influence of an evil spirit who has turned the minds of people to these good things and has turned these things then into idols in their life. In 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, look what Paul wrote. He said, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's saying there they cannot see the reality in which they live. In Ephesians 2, 2, he describes the course of this world as following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then in Ephesians six twelve he writes this, of the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We don't see that. It's not how we see the world because these are really intangible. These are invisible spiritual forces that are in effect in the world. What we often see are these very attractive, very alluring things. And yet, what's under the surface is not so much. It's not so alluring. It's not so attractive. In fact, at the core, what's driving things in the world today is pure evil. When God created Adam, He put him in the garden. He put him there to rule as king. But when he fell, Satan picked up the scepter. And he has been ruling as the prince of this world ever since. Now, God didn't lose His sovereignty at that point. Man did. And the devil has ruled under God's authority and power ever since. And to get a good picture of that what you need to do is go home and read Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. But it's the devil now who's inspiring this age and this way of life, which is dominated by sin, which is attractive. It promises all kind of pleasures. It promises fulfillment in the world. That's what this present age of evil offers. It offers great promises. It offers freedom. It offers fulfillment and pleasures, but it never delivers. The world is a cheat. Sin always leads to slavery and death. It's a very subtle attack. It's very convincing to lure you in, but it's never delivering in your life. This is what we have been rescued from, from a world that's very doomed. As we live in this present evil age, we have eternal life. We have new natures. We have new hearts. We've been born again and we're new creatures in Christ Jesus that have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. We're now free from this present evil. We're still in it. He tells us we're to remain in it and we're to live productive lives in it. We're not to withdraw from it. We're not to be recluses living outside the world, but we're not to be of it. We're to be in it, but not of it. We have the power of Christ within us to do that. We have the power to not merely maintain ourselves within it, but to challenge the world and even to some degree change the world. But what we know is ultimately only the Lord will do that. But we have influence because of who we are, because of what we have within us, because of the creatures that God has made us to be. We can shine His lights. We can shine out there, shine our brightness in the midst of the darkness. We can radiate the truth of God in our lives, in the things that we say, in the things that we do. The gospel that we live out every day that other people see within us. The truth of God, as it is lived out and spoken by us, will shed God's light on the world. The law of Moses, understand, it could never do that. It cannot change us. It cannot change the world. It can condemn the sinner, but it cannot change the sinner. It can bring death, but the law can never bring life. It was intended to bring death, to expose the sinner. That's what it was given for. It was given to expose that sin. And for that, back in the day, it was a great blessing to those people. But the law, it cannot take away sin. For that reason, Paul concludes his greeting here with these Galatians with a doxology in verse 5. It's a word of praise to the God that he loved. He says, To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And you can be certain of that. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The glory will be to God forevermore. That was an awful lot of doctrine right there packed into one little passage. We had the deity of Christ. We had grace and peace. We had the atonement. We had the doxology. But all of this was succinctly stated in anticipation for the main contents of this letter to come. Which is about these doctrines. Which is about helping us understand as it was helping those churches in Galatia understand. They're about the gift of life and liberty, about grace and peace. That's what we see in Jesus Christ. And to Paul, this doctrine, it was definitely worth fighting for. Let me just close with this. We don't need works of the law for our salvation. We don't need ceremonies. We don't need priests to bring us before God. Christ is all that we need. He is all-sufficient. He rescued us from this evil age by going to that cross where He paid the price for our sins, paid it in full, accomplished our salvation on that day. We can't add anything to that. All we can do is receive that as a free gift, a gift by faith in our lives and live in that freedom for the rest of our life. That's what Paul had preached to those Galatians originally when he did his missionary journey through there. And that's what he was reminding them of again through this letter. We all need that reminder constantly. That's what this book of Galatians gives to us. It brings us back to this essential facts of the Christian faith. The essential facts of life about grace and about faith in Jesus Christ. But maybe there's someone here. Maybe you're hearing all of this for the very first time. Or maybe for the first time in a long time, you're hearing that salvation is a free gift. It can't be earned. It's gratefully given and needs to be gratefully received as well. And if that's the case, I invite you to receive it this morning. Recognize that you are a sinner. Every person in the world is a sinner. We are all sinners. And to understand that, Jesus is the solution. He's God's eternal Son. He became a man. He died in our place, in the place of all the sinners, to rescue everyone who believes in Him. Rescue them from the doom and give them eternal life. That life is in Christ forever and ever. And the moment you believe in Him, the moment you receive that gift, you're justified, you're declared righteous, and you're completely accepted by Him. And He begins to do that work of transformation in your life. If you've never done that, come and trust Him today. Would you do that? Let's pray. I want to thank you for listening to the message today. I pray that this message somehow has touched you and created within you a passion for action for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have any questions or you need to make any decisions or you just need to talk to someone, I encourage you to contact your local pastor. And if you don't have one, if you don't have a local church, you may contact me through the church office at 620 336 2777. We'd love to see you on Sunday mornings in church for our celebration service. It's a great time of fellowship and worship of our Lord and Savior. Come join us. We know you'll be blessed. And thanks again for listening to the Cherryvale First Baptist Church sermon podcast and have a blessed day.